0: Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Fast Talk is sponsored by Quark, maker of next generation power meters, including the SRAM RED D0 power meter. Built specifically for SRAM's groundbreaking RED group set, the SRAM RED D0 power meter is compatible with all of SRAM's RED group sets. Find out more at quirk.com forward slash d zero. Welcome back, dear listeners, to another episode of Fast Talk. I am Kaylee Fretz, senior editor here at news sitting across the table, as always, from our good coach, Trevor Connor. How are you doing, Trevor?
1: I'm good, Kaylee. How are you
0: doing? I'm excellent. Uh, we also have a special guest today on the line via Skype all the way from Australia, I believe. Uh, we have Dr. John Hawley. Uh, Dr. Hawley, you are. Uh, your title is a bit of a mouthful. Why don't you introduce yourself, real quick?
2: <laughs> Hi, good uh, good afternoon or good evening, whatever it is uh, where you are. It's morning here in Australia, and I've just returned from Europe. So, uh, a little bit jet lagged, but nevertheless, we'll press on. Um, <laughs> official title I'm the director of the Center for Exercise and Nutrition here at the McKillop Institute of Health Research in, in Melbourne, uh, as you say, in Australia. So, a bit of a mouthful, but basically, the role of the lab is to study exercise and nutrition interventions with the with the sole aim of improving exercise capacity and uh, exercise performance. So that's probably enough as far as an introduction goes.
1: So I'm actually going to interject because I've been very excited to get you onto our podcast. Um, as somebody who spends way too much time reading the research, Dr. Holly for the last 20 years has been right at the the top of the the stack in terms of putting out the research on, on how our bodies adapt to training and, and what's the best uh, approaches to nutrition for, for both training and for, for racing. Pretty much any time I've tried to research the physiology of, of adaptations and endurance sports, his studies always come to the top of the list. So this is, this is really an exciting one for me.
0: We are absolutely excited to have Dr. Holly on. And the topic today is perfect for actually both of you both, uh, both Trevor and John, because we're talking nutrition today, and this is right up your wheelhouse. So I'm kind of excited for this one. I'm, I always learn a lot when we go into these ones where where Trevor is an expert in his own right. Uh, the the topic today is broadly uh, the differences between race and training nutrition, and what you should be different doing differently in races versus in training. Uh, and we're going to go into a whole bunch of other things beyond that, but that is sort of the overarching theme of today's podcast. Trevor, let's start, let's start with you. Let's start with uh, a 10,000-foot view of why nutrition is critical to both racing and training.
1: I always want to put that bullet on the board, and I'm regretting <laughs> it because to try to explain the importance of the nutrition, to, to, and Dr. Holly, please feel free to save me here. But to try to explain it in one minute is next to impossible. But obviously, this is how we fuel our bodies. Um, We can't perform without that fuel. We also can't recover without that fuel. Uh, I see a lot of cyclists as a coach who really focus on what intervals should I be doing? How should I be training? But don't really think about am I fueling my body so I can get through this training workout and also, more importantly, be able to, or just as importantly, be able to do the workout the next day. And also how can I optimally get myself through the race? I am differentiating the the racing and the training a bit here, because that's really what we want to get at is, is the solution the same for both? So Dr. Holly, I guess that's the first question that we'll throw at you is what are the your goals nutritionally for both racing and training and are they the same?
2: Well, that's a good, good place to start. And I think you did well there, Trevor, so I didn't didn't have to rescue you there. I mean the <laughs> why not the way I look at nutrition is uh, it, it should support the training. It's an adjunct to the training, and and as you correctly pointed out, there are a lot of athletes who I see, you know, think it's a little bit of an add-on. They're quite preoccupied with you know how many hill reps they've done or how many miles they've got in the diary at the end of the week. But you know, only when they fall apart generally do they think of nutrition or pick the phone up and try and you know see someone like myself or or a nutritionist. So I think it's very important to to get the message across to to serious athletes and by serious athletes I mean people who are training you know on a on a daily basis and upwards of an hour to several hours the, the nutritional support is absolutely essential back to your original question there is a there is a difference between nutritional support during training or to support training and and competition nutrition as we'll call it and you know one is really concerned competition nutrition that is with with optimizing availability of fuel and maximizing that type of approach whereas the other now is we've we've heard the term and it's it's not a new term but we tend to think of training in terms of dietary periodization and again periodization is not a new concept to athletes as far as training is concerned but certainly it's a new concept i think relatively new as far as nutrition is concerned
0: Actually, Trevor and I were discussing this uh, before we turned on the microphone as something that is relatively new, I think, to the world of, of sports nutrition is this, is this concept of periodization within nutrition. Why don't we dig into that a little bit more? We've talked about periodization in your exercise before, but maybe we should just redefine real quick. Let's go all the way back to the beginning here and redefine what periodization would look like uh, in a nutritional context. And I'll throw to you, Dr. Holly.
2: Okay. Well, that's a fair enough question to start with. Um, if we think of training, it's easy to do the training model first because most of the listeners will relate to that. It would be rather ridiculous to assume that everyone goes out and rides two hours each day, every day of the week at the same pace, at the same intensity on the same course. There is no periodization there. There is no differential between sessions. And, you know, you're not going to get tremendously race fit by doing that. Well, the same applies to nutrition. You do not eat the same on a daily basis, day in and day out. We eat to either fuel the demands of the training session or in some cases, as I'm sure we're going to get into in a in a few minutes, we can periodize nutrition by absolutely taking the opposite approach, and that is driving the training adaptation further by actually removing some nutrients. But the concept of periodization is exactly that, that not every training session will be the same in a week or in a given macro cycle, and therefore these are the not every dietary recommendation or macronutrient intake will be the same on a daily basis. So it's really just the manipulation of nutritional support to actually match the training demands of any given week or month or whatever the session happens to be. So again, periodization just really refers to the manipulation of your diet around certain training sessions in some cases to support them with optimal nutrition and usually we're talking about carbohydrate but actually removing some carbohydrate to push the training adaptation even further
1: so what would be some real world practical examples of nutritionally periodizing to optimally support performance versus periodizing to potentially optimize adaptations
2: Okay, well, let, let's perhaps do this systematically. And I, I know if we can talk about the training first rather than the performance, I think you know that will be sequential and logical and it'll be easier for, uh, for all of us to comprehend. Certainly with regard to training, we used to think that basically one size fits all. And what do I mean by that? Well, if you look at the sports nutrition guidelines, and these are written by myself, by Louise Burke, by other authoritative people in the world, we basically said about five or six years ago that we should be ingesting, that is endurance athletes, should be ingesting a, a reasonably high carbohydrate diet, you know, six to eight grams per kilogram of carbohydrate for body mass almost every day. And what this failed to recognize was that training differs on a day-to-day basis. So that's historically where we've come from. We've come from this point where we said one size fits all. We're now recognizing very Clearly, and athletes have probably known this (laughs) longer than the sports scientists, at least of those working close to to the coaches in the field at the coalface, so to speak, is that athletes don't do the same thing every day. And therefore, their nutritional demands are completely different. And I'll give you an example. If a cyclist was going to do a high-quality, intense training session, we know that high-intensity training sessions done at 85% of maximal heart rate, 90% of VO2, such a session might be after a 30 or 40-minute spin in warm-up, something like six times five minutes at, at your best 40K race pace. We know from our studies that this depletes about 40% of your muscle glycogen. Therefore, you need adequate muscle glycogen to start such a training session, and therefore carbohydrate availability before the training session, and to some extent during this training session, and certainly perhaps after the training session, should be high. On the other hand, Let's say you're then taking a, an easy recovery ride the next day, done at 50 or 60% of your peak heart rate, a very long ride, three, four hours, where the main aim of the session is to perhaps increase rates of fat oxidation in the muscle. We know that the provision of large amounts of carbohydrate might be actually detrimental to push those benefits. So here's a day where you might actually go as low as three to four grams of carbohydrate per each kilogram of body mass. And again, there is more than adequate substrate in the muscle to support such a training session without exogenous supplies of carbohydrate or drinking or eating gels during the ride. So two examples there of where a, a quality session demands carbohydrate availability and where a more less intense session for a more prolonged period, which relies not exclusively but predominantly on fat, does not require the same degree of carbohydrate supplementation.
1: So I know you did some some research, it seemed that there was a lot of excitement about 10 years ago, this idea of training in a glycogen depleted state or eating a, a high fat, low carbohydrate diet. And you saw the uh, higher response in PGC one alpha. And I'm going to tell you our very first podcast, I tried to say that all the, the full term. <laughs> and how many takes did I have to do? Many. <laughs> and I took that right out of, uh, right out of one of your reviews. Um, so, so thank you for the tongue twister. Um, but you were seeing that increase in mitochondrial biogenesis, a, a lot of different adaptations that you were very excited about before. But then when you started doing the studies, looking at how it affected performance, it seems like that doesn't seem to be playing out. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, that's a pretty good summary of uh, of where we're at at the moment. And I guess there's been an evolution of this. So let, let's be quite clear what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is commencing a training session, and a reasonably intense one at that is what we used in our studies, in a state where you've probably already lost about 50% of your glycogen. Now, there's one really important caveat here, Trevor, and I, and I think we need to make this quite clear. The studies of high-fat diets and lowering your carbohydrate availability by merely displacing carbohydrate calories with fat is totally different to our train-low paradigm. So I want to make that quite clear for your listeners. A high-fat diet, by definition, is a low-carbohydrate diet. But where we've done our train-low studies, it's very important that we realize that the low glycogen state is induced by training, not by diet. And there's a big, big difference mechanistically there. So let me just walk you through very, very slowly. And I'm I'm aware that I'm talking far too long here. But our first studies that we looked at, we did ask subjects to actually train twice a day. We did what we call a glycogen depleting session, a, a long ride of 90 to 120 minutes in the morning. And then we kept subjects in the laboratory for several hours and just fed them basically placebo, even though they thought they were ingesting carbohydrates and then asked them to commence the second session of the day with low glycogen. So it's only the second session of the day which was commenced with low glycogen availability. What we did find was that despite power outputs being 7 or 8% lower, and we did these studies initially over three to four weeks using three or four training sessions a week in this low glycogen state, that as you correctly pointed out, all the training markers were massively increased. Now, this was remarkable to us for... For several reasons, and and the main one is because these were already well-trained cyclists or triathletes doing 15 to 20 hours a week of training. So what this showed us that was quite clear, and now we've repeated it several times and so have several other independent laboratories, is that even with well-trained athletes who supposedly have already maxed out their training adaptations, it was possible within a very short period, that is just three to four weeks, of training low, perhaps only three times a week, so a total of nine to 10 sessions in those three weeks, to actually push some of the mitochondrial adaptations that you talked about, PGC1 and citrate synthase and various other markers, up to already higher levels. Now, that was phenomenal to us, but it came as a cost, and you've clearly outlined that. We were unable to detect a clear benefit to performance. So that was a quandary to us, and that's probably a good place for to to stop and pause and say, well. Those studies were very interesting, but for the athlete, it's all very well to increase lots of these, what my wife calls alphabet soup markers in the muscle. But if it doesn't translate into performance, then the coach and athlete isn't really interested. So that, that became the, I guess the point for us to start thinking of what we were doing wrong and trying to think of different strategies.
0: Just to, just to really quickly, uh, could you guys define some of those alphabet soup markers? Cause we've gone through them in, in previous podcasts, but just in case people, in case listeners are showing up here for the first time.
2: Sure, sure. I guess the main marker that we looked at uh, as an outcome variable was resting muscle glycogen. And by training in a lowered state, literally just for 10 sessions a week, we were able to increase resting muscle glycogen. Now, in theory, any intervention which gives you more glycogen at the beginning of a race should actually lead to an increase in performance. Um, So that was one main outcome marker, and we were surprised at. But again studies from Benck saltine's lab in uh, in scandinavia showed that in 2005 so it's nice when other labs can confirm it other markers of what we call mitochondrial biogenesis and that's basically the the generation of new mitochondria which is obviously very good in the muscle of endurance trained athletes because this is the powerhouse of the cell for generating uh, adenosine triphosphate the the energy which the muscle uses all the markers To do with mitochondrial biogenesis were up so we looked at markers such as citrate synthase which is a a marker of the uh, TCA cycle the triboxic acid cycle Uh, and, and every such marker such as that and markers of fat oxidation were also up so anything that we basically looked at which was to do with either lipid or carbohydrate oxidation these markers were up so again on that side of the balance sheet, you would say that performance should be improved, but unfortunately, <laughs> that wasn't the case. Do you know why?
0: <laughs> I mean, I'm assuming that you've, you've spent quite a bit of time since then trying to figure out precisely why uh, you didn't see
2: you didn't see performance <laughs> I, increases. We, we spend a lot of time thinking about this, um, and and the simple answer is we don't really know why. I've, I've got a few theories on this, and 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 one of them is really quite incidental to to some of the outcome measures. I, I really honestly don't think sometimes we can measure performance as accurate as we think in the laboratory situation. There are so many variables out on the road, whether it be in a triathlon or a road race, that we cannot simply replicate in the lab. The wind, the drafting, the bike handling, and various other aspects. And when you put someone on a, on a laboratory cycle ergometer, and even if you put a screen in front of them and try and simulate a course, it's not quite the same. And Uh, apart from that i have no real answers of course uh, one answer which i I often get thrown at me at uh, talks like this is well maybe the muscle was already stacked with enough mitochondria and enzymatic machinery to do the business anyway and that's a very good point perhaps adding to the if you like molecular soup in the muscle once you've reached a point you've reached saturation point and you know adding more units doesn't necessarily equate to performance but Again, I'm not convinced of either argument there. And mm. my honest answer to that is I think it's somewhere a little bit of both.
0: Interesting. Or maybe just a point of diminishing returns sort of thing, right? Once you have so much. Absolutely. <laughs> Doesn't Absolutely. really help anymore. Yeah. Huh, fascinating. Yeah. But going back now, you did
1: say that it, it's different when you're talking about nutritional changes where you're you're eating a very low carbohydrate, high fat for an extended state. And it seems like there, there does seem to be a a very clear mechanism for why you don't see the improvements in performance. And as I remember, one of those is you see a decrease in glycolysis. You simply can't. Uh, do the high-intensity efforts as well. I'm trying to keep this in, in simpler language. <laughs>
0: I yeah. appreciate that, yeah, well, Trevor. Yeah. He, just, he does it for me, John. <laughs> <laughs> I play the village <laughs> idiot on this podcast, uh, <laughs> and I'm mostly hanging on just by my fingertips so far, so I appreciate you guys dumbing it down a little well, bit for us.
2: You've obviously read the literature very well, because the, and I don't want to get into the, uh, the old high-fat, low-carbohydrate argument, which certain uh, other people are publicizing at the moment although we can't touch on that state i guess a little later but one of the things that we did find is that when we look at these high fat diets there's no question that you start to use a lot more fat and by definition if you can use fat from that depot in your muscle you can spare some of your glycogen and the question to us was you know why on earth wasn't it turning into a performance benefit and the simple answer is as you've correctly pointed out we weren't sparing glycogen in a positive way. We were actually impairing the ability of the muscle to use glycogen. So there's a quite different system here. Instead of being able freely to put the pedal down and uh, use glycogen when the intensity is on, here, the high fat diet actually put the brake on that. So it was the opposite effect. So we'd given the muscle all these benefits, would increase the capacity to oxidize fat, and... It was almost like riding with half your brake pad on all the time because we had impaired the ability of the muscle, as you said, Trevor, to to go through glycolysis and break down glycogen. So this was a bad sparing, if you like, and not a good sparing. And again, I might add that the mechanisms by which high-fat diets do that are completely different and uh, and polarized from the fact that when you train low, it's a completely different mechanism. But yeah, good point. Glycogen sparing, as we thought of it as in the old days of a good thing here, was not a good thing. It was actually glycogen impairment.
1: So you essentially, you gained the ability to go forever. You just couldn't go forever very fast. <laughs> Is that a good well, way to quite, put it?
2: That's a nice way of putting it. And and it's an interesting point you raise here, because in the studies that were done very, very early on, 1983 by uh, Finney et al., published in Metabolism, where they did feed athletes a very low-carbohydrate diet, less than 50 grams a day and basically a ketogenic diet for four weeks, how they test so-called performance is completely different, in my view, from real performance. They ask athletes to merely ride to exhaustion at a very low percentage, 63% in the case of their study of their VO2 max, in other words, about 70% of, of maximal heart rate. And when you test endurance, in inverted commas like that, yeah, you may be able to go longer on a high-fat diet, but to the best of my knowledge, there aren't any races where you set out on a line and say to people, well, ride rider to fix submaximal workload and the one who falls off the bike last is the winner. That's not how real races are won. Oh. So you're absolutely correct here. It improves endurance capacity, but endurance capacity is not the same as performance.
0: So you, you just used a term that I definitely know, uh, which is ketogenic, and it's one that we've heard – thrown around quite often uh i've had it used at me uh probably because the person that was using it at me just assumed i had no idea what he was talking about um we've heard it it, it, particularly in relation to team sky and some other teams using apparently ketogenic diets to to pull additional performance out of their riders i'd just be interested uh, as an expert and, and somebody who pulled that word uh out of a completely separate conversation what you think of of those sort of diets for somebody like a Tour de France rider. And if I'm understanding you correctly, it sounds like the performance benefits you get from that sort of diet are not the sort of performance benefits you want in something like the Tour de France.
2: Well, again, um, maybe a good podcast is to talk to Dr. James Morton, who's a good friend and colleague from Liverpool, John Moores University, who worked very closely with Team Sky. And he Mm -hmm. can completely debunk some of the myths surrounding mainly mainly Chris Froome, as we know, who's uh, you know, supposedly not eating any carbohydrate and <laughs> riding right the Tour de France and, and, and able to put out power outputs, you know, 450, 500 watts, you know, while climbing. This isn't done on fat metabolism. I can assure you of that emphatically. So let's just, let's just back off. And, and again, I like to talk science here rather than, than anecdotes and anything else. If you go back to the original paper in metabolism in 1983, you will find there that the conclusion of the paper reads, and I'm paraphrasing from memory here, that ketogenic diets may be beneficial for athletes involved in endurance events lasting two or more days. (laughs) Now, The the message has become completely diluted, and we have members of the, I'll call it the ketogenic brigade, but we had a, a tour recently in Australia by certain figures who I won't mention by name, but it was called the Low Carb Down Under Tour. And we have these people, so-called experts, talking to football teams. Now, if you know anything about Australian rules football, you'll know that it's a game played at very high intensities with high running velocities, which is glycogen dependent. And I was shocked and stunned, you know, to see headlines in our paper that certain of our Australian football rules teams were following the ketogenic diet. Because I can assure you if they would, they'd be bottom of the ladder because the demands of those team sports are so different to prolonged endurance events. Now, getting back to your question there about Tour de France, I think this is a an issue of dietary periodization once again, and I think the message has been lost. And here I'd like to really make quite clear to the listeners that extremes of anything, be it diet or training or weight loss or whatever, are dangerous. The ketogenic diet is extreme. It is less than 50 grams of carbohydrate a day. Any athlete who is trying to compete unless it's in an event such as riding across America or something which is performed at such very low intensities that carbohydrate is not obligatory fuel, it is nonsense. I mean, it literally is nonsense. And again, just had a study published on this, and I'm not sure if you want to go into this, Trevor, but we can certainly discuss it, a paper which has just come out in Journal of Physiology using world-class athletes who we've placed on a ketogenic diet, and guess what? performance was impaired and walking economy in these elite race walkers was impaired. So again, the ketogenic diet, uh, I'm not sure why all the fuss has been created. I think there's been a lot of fuss with little science in my honest opinion.
1: Hmm. That, that paper, what actually surprised me was the fact that they were less efficient burning more fuel or or less economical. I was actually surprised by that because I always thought that, uh, Burning fat w- was more efficient; that you, you produced more uh, ATP per uh, per mole of fat than you did uh, carbohydrates. But I, uh, and, this, and the explanation, the, the paper made a lot of sense. It was the the NAD versus the FAD, and uh, absolutely correct.
0: Strange look. We, it's a lot of alphabet soup happening? <laughs> okay
2: so, so to put that in uh, in like terms here. So what we did very briefly, paraphrasing the study, and let's make no mistake about this: we used elite athletes that term gets bandied abound we had olympic gold silver world championship medalists european uh, medalists this was an elite squad of around 29 to 30 very elite race walkers and i'll have to be honest until i'd seen these guys train and been part of this training camp walking for me and i shouldn't say this was a little bit like you know who can whisper the loudest type thing it, it, it's a strange <laughs> event and they're perhaps unrecognized athletes after watching these guys train upwards of 200 kilometers a week and do cross-training and weights and everything else, I tell you now, I have the utmost respect for them. These are true athletes in every sense of the word. What we did was we placed them on three different diets, roughly 10 in each group. One was the ketogenic diet, which, as I said, under 50 grams of carbohydrate a day. The point here I want to make is that this study was done at the Australian Institute of Sport with a staff of more nutritionists than subjects in this case, And we fed and weighed everything that went into the athlete's mouth. And one thing, and I know it's a little bit of a sidebar, but my phone rings regularly with athletes saying, I'm on the ketogenic diet, I'm on this diet, I'm on that diet. When I actually refer them to a nutritionist and they list what they're eating, they're generally eating you know 200 to 400 grams of carbohydrates a day. So when athletes say they're having a ketogenic diet and what they're actually doing are usually two completely different things. So in this case, everything was well controlled. Cutting to the chase, mm. the athletes trained intensely for a period of, of four weeks. We tested them at midpoints before, during, and after. We took various blood markers. Because they were elite athletes, we weren't able to take muscle biopsies. But as you correctly pointed out, we did notice a deterioration in walking economy. The oxygen cost of walking was was higher. We also noticed a drop in 10-kilometer race performance. And again, this wasn't a stage race in the laboratory. This was an IAAF-sanctioned race where we flew out officials with proper rules and regulations, with aid stations and everything else. The point here I want to make is that we'd carbohydrate restored them at the end. So even when you have a ketogenic diet and you restore carbohydrate in the last 48 hours before a race, in this case, the economy and performance was still far worse. So there were no benefits to the ketogenic diet. Aside from that, and just finishing on this one, the subjects reported just feeling absolutely terrible on the diet. The mood changes, the almost <laughs> aggressive behavior from some of these very mildly mannered walkers was was absolutely apparent to all the investigators. And again, you know, there weren't pleasant people to be around if we're on the ketogenic diet. So one thing that's often missed out in the literature is that it's all very well to say I'm on the ketogenic diet, but being around people who are hyperglycemic and trying to train at a reasonably high level is... Uh, It wasn't a fun aspect of the study, I can assure you. A whole bunch of hangry athletes. (laughs) That sounds fun. Uh, Hungry
0: and
1: (laughs) and angry. (laughs) I think we've established that uh, likely Team Sky is not eating a ketogenic diet. Yeah, look,
2: when when any intensity is is required, carbohydrate is the fuel you go to fuel. We've written a review on this in Sports Medicine, and we basically say for for any Olympic event, you know, three hours or less, you're carbohydrate dependent. And and you are. To win those races, to compete in Olympic level triathlons, Olympic distance triathlons, even to run three, three and a half hour marathons, the main fuel required is carbohydrate and not necessarily obligatory use of fat at those workloads. Just as a sidebar again, it's interesting and I'd love to get data on the recent attempt at the two hour Marathon record. My my bet is that these guys are, have very high RER values, which basically means they're burning almost exclusively carbohydrate to run at that pace. You don't run 21 kilometers an hour for two hours on fat, I can assure you.
1: Let's take a quick break. Fast Talk is sponsored by Quark, maker of next-generation power meters, including the SRAM XX1 Eagle Power Meter. The XX1 power meter unites Quark's D0 platform with carbon tuned crank arms for robust, intuitive power measurement in the lightest ever mountain bike chassis. It's compatible with all of SRAM's 1X mountain bike drivetrains. Find out more at quark.com D0. So I know you've had some recent studies that have taken a, a very unique and, and novel approach to this. Uh, training training a low um, glycogen state to hopefully get some adaptation so can you tell us a little bit about that and my understanding is it involves actually uh,
2: the time of the day when you train and uh, sleep yep that's great um well as you as we pointed out earlier i guess that the the disadvantage with the the twice a day training sessions it was that for some athletes it was quite impractical to do this in other words lower glycogen initially and then follow up so we were trying to come up with a practical way which everyday athletes who, you know, most of them have a job could could actually incorporate the train low strategy without some of the disadvantages. And what we came up with was actually sleeping low. So we trained high and slept low. And let me just define that very quickly. In order not to compromise a quality session, we had athletes train late afternoon, early evening with high carbohydrate availability. This, to some extent, uh, almost negated every negative uh, effect of training low before. And if you remember what happened when we trained low before is that the power outputs in the the work were really, really lower, 7 or 8%. So we trained the guys in the evening with high carbohydrate availability, good quality sessions, and here's the twist. We then put them to bed, and this was done in the lab, by the way, and fed them. We then put them to bed with low carbohydrate availability. And there was two reasons for this. Firstly, we wanted them to get up in the morning and do an easy session with high fat availability, the capacity to oxidize fat. But secondly, we also wanted the best of both worlds. And by giving them a low-carbohydrate diet for that night, we were basically able to prolong the period which the muscle was exposed to low-carbohydrate availability. So let's say they finished their workout at 7 o'clock. They then ate a meal, which was high-fat and high-protein, very little carbohydrate. They didn't do the next session until 7 or 8 the next morning, thus giving the muscle 12 hours of exposure to low-carbohydrate availability. What did this do? Well, it enabled them, firstly, on the night of the high-intensity training session, not to compromise the power output or work put. Secondly, quite surprisingly to us, without carbohydrate availability, it didn't disturb their sleep. Thirdly, it gave the muscle exposure for a longer time period than in our previous studies, namely 12 hours to the low carbohydrate availability. And fourthly, it didn't compromise the, the I guess, easy ride the next day, a two to three hour ride, which was done in a low carbohydrate state with high fat availability. So this is something on a practical basis that the athlete could incorporate. And I guess the next question, and one I'm asked frequently is how often should you do this? Well, probably a couple of times a week at Uh, I would say using it in the build-up stages rather than the competition stages near a competition. So we find that if athletes do this more than twice a week, they they generally tend to uh, have a lower overall training uh, quotient, if you like, volume and intensity for that week. So I would probably recommend doing this a couple of times a week. That is sleeping with low-carbohydrate availability. Given the proviso that you've done your intense session the night before, and that you can go out the next morning and do a relatively easy ride. So this is a twist on the train low and something that is practical and take-home for most athletes.
1: Which is great. Sadly, I do this all the time without even knowing it because I tend to work (laughs) late and then hop on my bike, do a really hard workout, and go to bed without eating right. Well, it's funny
2: you say that just as a a sidebar here. I mean, you can use this or, or not, but... When we were actually presenting this, first of all, it was a day, uh, a meeting in Europe, one of a world-class athlete there who's, who's actually won Ironman said, well, Dr. Hawley, I'm so glad you've, uh, you've said that you've legitimized something that I've been doing for four or five years. And I'm like, well, you're a world champion. You don't, you don't need me to legitimize <laughs> your training habits when you're winning world champs and Ironman." So it was amazing that the athletes again were, if you like, several light years ahead of the, uh, the exercise scientists. We merely came along and merely confirmed what the athletes were actually doing in the field or at least some of them
1: I wish I remember who it was but a, uh, a physiologist I quite respected said if you ever want to be a great exercise physiologist go see what the top athletes and coaches are doing because they're always 15 years ahead of the science and just be the one absolutely. to prove
2: absolutely and I, I'll actually concur with that you know I learn a lot from just hanging around with these guys talking to the athletes talking to the coaches and again Some of our best ideas for studies have actually been proposed by coaches, and I I think that's no coincidence that they're leading the field, to be honest. So
1: let's get to the real practical. In training, what should our listeners be focusing on in terms of their nutrition to to optimize their training?
0: And then also in terms of timing, because that seems to be a a major uh, piece of what we're talking about here.
2: Well, look, given that you've got listeners of varied ability and uh, competition level, it's a, it's a hard question to give a, a one-size-fits-all answer. But I, I would say that athletes who are serious about their training need to start thinking about periodization of their nutrition. And by that, as we said earlier in the podcast, we mean not throwing carbohydrate in massive quantities at every training session per se. That would have been the old philosophy, you know, perhaps uh, a dozen or so years ago. What I always envisage now from a practical viewpoint is is the deliberate undertaking of some training sessions with low or lowered carbohydrate availability. And when we talk about carbohydrate availability, we don't just mean muscle glycogen. We sometimes mean supplementation during rides. Having said that, if you want to put your foot down and you're doing a quality workout, a track workout or a hard hill session or whatever it happens to be, you need carbohydrate on board. How often should we be training with low-carbohydrate? Again, I'd I'd emphasize that this isn't something you want to be doing day in and day out. I'd probably only do this a couple of times a week. And for the most part, I'd do it in this sort of, you know, the base phase of training, uh, well before competition phases. Again, as you get nearer and nearer competition, the intensity needs to be high, and therefore carbohydrate availability needs to be high. When we talk about training strategies uh, with regard to nutrition, again, I think we need to be cognizant of the fact that it isn't one size fits all and that we do need to be making a conscious and deliberate effort to, if you like, nutritionally support the demands of training, but also be very aware of what the goal of that particular training session is is required. And I think if you sit down with a coach or an advisor and devise a program such that you really have an idea of what every training session is, then the nutrition to support that is is pretty logical and comes out in the wash type thing.
1: And sorry, I should have clarified because I I essentially just asked you to give the complete answer to nutrition in two minutes, uh, which obviously is impossible. So (laughs) I I was asking the question more in the context of how should the, the focus during training be different from the focus during
2: racing? All right, that's a good question. You know, the focus during training should be to optimize training adaptations. And what do we mean by that? We mean the adaptations, which are absolutely prerequisite and necessary to support racing. So for example, if your event is a 40 kilometer time trial that you're trying to break an hour or 65 minutes or whatever the time goal happens to be, you have to spend a certain proportion of your training at that intensity. And to do that, you need to be tailoring your nutrition to support that particular workout. So as far as training goes, There are times when carbohydrate availability will need to be high, and there are times when it needs to be low. As far as competition strategy goes, it's almost one size does fit all. It's a case of you want to increase carbohydrate availability in the muscle before, via dietary manipulation in the last 48 hours, increasing carbohydrate intake. You want to be having a pre-race breakfast to increase carbohydrate availability not only in the bloodstream but also in the liver and if the event is lasting over an hour you certainly need to be supplementing with carbohydrate during the event as far as post-race strategies are concerned again it depends on an athlete's race schedule and what they have to do as far as backing up the next day or the next week but carbohydrate availability should be high before during and to a large extent after competition and that's how it differs. From the training strategy where again we've talked about periodizing nutrition and having periods where nutritional intake of carbohydrate is either high or low or moderate
1: actually as you were saying that i was thinking about what i do and i, I very naturally have over the years fallen into what you describe if i'm heading out for a lower intensity five hour ride Uh, which is usually in the morning, I'll just have some eggs beforehand. And even the food I'll have on that ride will um, uh, I personally love kind bars, which have a little higher fat content and some carbohydrates, but I'm not focused on the carbohydrates where if I'm going out to do some intervals, or I'm going to go out to the the weekly training race, um, I'm making sure I'm I'm getting some good simple sugars in my system right before the ride. And and I'm taking along the simple sugars
2: for the ride. Absolutely. I mean, and again, the going back to your first scenario of the long ride there, I mean, the basic object there is not to become hypoglycemic. So as long as you're trickling in carbohydrate at a rate, which means that you can maintain glycemia, and by that, we mean that you don't bonk on the bike, then, you know, you've got more than adequate fat to to carry on for many, many hours. So that's really, you know, you've hit the nail on the head there again, you've, you've come up with a, a practical strategy which ensures that basically you've got enough fuel to carry on the activity at the duration and intensity that you want without going into a state of hypoglycemia. because make no mistake if you do go hypoglycemic, you do have to stop and you do have to get to a carbohydrate source. So again, you've painted the opposite scenario when you go out for an intense session, carbohydrate availability via simple sugars should be high.
1: Dr. Hawley has given us a lot of the cutting-edge science behind nutrition today. But as he said, a lot of that science comes out of seeing what the pros and coaches are doing. So we thought we should talk with a couple professional cyclists and see what they do with their nutrition. Just remember, though, that nutrition is a complex subject with a lot of conflicting opinions. Ultimately, as both of our pros recommend, you have to experiment and find what works for you. We have pro tour rider and fast-talk regular Tom Squinch. One of these days, I'll actually pronounce that right. But first, let's talk with BMC rider Joey Roscoff, who this year alone rode the Giro d'Italia and won the U.S. National Time Trial Championships. If you listen, I think you can hear him packing for nationals in the background. Wish I had known at the time. Do you eat and drink the same way on training rides that you do in races, or is your nutrition different?
3: It's a good bit different. I go with, well, generally more hearty, healthy foods when I'm just at home training. I'm not afraid of vegetables, whole grains, seeds, and all that healthy stuff that people recommend for a balanced diet, which is not really the case at races. Depending on how I'm feeling, I usually opt for like super simple, like a bunch of white rice and eggs. I mean i've got no science behind it but i just imagine it as being pure fuel when i'm at a race
1: well it does go with um there is some science saying that when you're training that hard your digestive system doesn't function as well so you actually want the simpler foods you don't want uh, complex nutrition Um, with lots of fiber your body can't process it
3: well which i don't have a problem with training but um yeah no matter how hard i'm training because normally it's not as hard as as 5 hours a day at a race for a week or 3 weeks so what about
1: when you're uh, on the bike is it the same thing do you tend to eat a little more complex and and nutritionally when you're training and a little simpler when you're racing or do you try uh, to do the same thing
3: yeah i'm pretty pretty open while training i mean i'll have stuff with more fat in it or fiber. you know. It's kind of what I have around the house. <laughs> it plays a big part in it. But the races, I try to do uh, rice bars and I'm pretty good with the power bar products also. And when you're just taking gels or I go for the
1: power bars with low fat, low fiber, a little bit of protein. So with your team everybody eats a little bit differently you find or
3: yeah some people are almost only pasta or some people are almost only rice everyone's kind of have i mean you eat a bunch of carbs obviously so that's the base of every meal either pasta or rice and uh yeah some people eat two steaks at dinner
1: how did you find out what works for you and and how we, how would you recommend to the readers they, they figure that out i mean the big part is whenever you have success
3: try as best you can to remember the entire build up to that i mean it's not going to work every time but maybe you can catch on to some some trends or likewise if you have a terrible day on the bike
1: So you talked a little bit about what do you eat when you're racing? What do you eat on your training rides? Is there any consistency? You were saying it was mostly what's lying around the house.
3: Yeah, there's consistency. I mean,
1: there's just a big variety. But
3: this week, I got a couple packages of Stroop, Stroop waffles at the grocery store. So I've been packing them in my pockets. If I get really motivated, I'll make some rice or oat based bars at the house. Package them up for the next few days of training. That usually only happens if I really have a few rest days and then I'm getting bored around the house. <laughs> Into like cooking. My okay. girlfriend will make banana bread sometimes.
1: But it's a lot of more solid, traditional type food when you're when you're doing your long rides. Yeah, it doesn't bother me any.
3: I don't really feel the need for gels.
1: What about uh interval days where you're going shorter but harder? Uh do you change up what you're you're eating on those rides at all?
3: Well, yeah. I mean, I'll I'll still eat a lot on interval days because you're
1: especially if they're intense.
3: I won't start the interval with anything with any meat in my stomach.
1: Have you ever played with your nutrition or, or uh, gotten any advice on on modifying your nutrition to um aid your training?
3: Yeah, a big thing that our nutritionist pushes is protein before bedtime, after dinner, like in the form of a, a drink mix or a yogurt, something a little bit more readily digestible than meat. If you're feeling a little hungry after dinner, then apparently protein does good things if it helps you repair during the night.
1: There's a lot of people who are now talking about this idea of nutritional periodization and, and doing some rides with no food. Um, is that something that's ever been proposed here? That you given a try, or is that something you'd you'd rather avoid?
3: It's definitely something I would rather avoid. I have avoided it, and the team doesn't push it. But so, if some riders are interested in trying the low carb whatever all these theories floating around they resources are there like the nutritionist wants to help with that also and she'll try to figure out the best way for you to do it without completely sacrificing your training quality i have never tackled that kind of thing i feel lucky when i make it through every any training ride feeling decent so i try to cut down on this the struggle just to eat the carbs and uh feel good <laughs> feel like i can go out and smash it and do some hard riding i mean it's definitely a trend um i don't think it's a secret anymore that team sky has been doing that or i don't know what they do now but a lot of their guys were doing it for a long time and they've all ended up pretty skinny and uh successful
0: we're here with tom's squinch canadale Dray Professional, and we're going to ask you about ride versus race nutrition.
1: Do you eat the same foods? Do you have the same focus in your training um, as you do in your racing, or is your nutrition different?
4: My racing and training nutrition definitely is a little bit different. However, I do consume, I definitely try out the same stuff in training as I will in races. Just because to see how it fits with my stomach and stuff. But in training, I will go slightly less carbs. uh, Maybe more on the protein side. I would not make rice cakes, which the team does, for example. And those are mostly carbs. Like, I don't know, 90-80% carbs. And in training, I'd use either my own made ride food. or, Which is a lot of the times uh, not butter-based. Just because it's more protein, it, it I don't get hungry, but and I can ride, but at the same time, I ride with less carbohydrates available to the body, which I feel like helps develop my endurance a little bit more.
1: Okay, so there's an actual reason in terms of training and strength for this. It's not just a- yes. Uh, one if day. i
4: if i do race specific intervals if i do motor pacing if i do really hard forty twenties, if i do five minutes full gas i will use some gels in the tr- in the ride i might even use a caffeine gel if i'm cracked
1: <laughs> okay what do you use in racing and what's the focus there
4: uh in races sometimes in long days which not necessarily applies to weekend crits i would start with a protein bottle actually with a bottle of mix and a bottle of protein uh, which has 20 grams of protein and 10 grams of carbs as i feel that uh, it helps me extend the amount the amount of time to like really fatigue Uh, and in racing i will definitely focus on having enough carbs enough uh, mix i don't really drink that much water unless it's really hot And uh, in the last two hours, I will definitely switch to... Or at least hour 30, I will definitely switch to gels. And as caffeine works, it takes a while to kick in fully. And it doesn't stop working for a while. I would usually take my caffeine gel an hour 30 before the race finishes.
1: Okay. And is this purely focused on performance or is there especially for somebody like you who does a lot of stage racing is there some thought about i need to be able to race tomorrow as well so it's not just about getting to the finish line today
4: it is both definitely the main focus is performance but that protein bottle in the beginning also helps with the recovery the day after
1: out of interest was that something that you got from your team from somebody else or has that just been your experience the protein
4: bottle is from the team yeah there
1: has been some recent research on that showing that the, the belief that, that having a little bit of protein with carbohydrates improves performance, that's been mostly debunked. But they've been saying there's still a benefit to some protein when you're racing because it will speed recovery after the race. I didn't yeah. know if that was part of your reasoning. I can totally see it. Any other advice for our listeners in terms of things they should or shouldn't be eating both in
4: training and in races? The biggest advice would be just not to change anything before a race. What you do is... What works and stick to what works. There's, as long as you feel comfortable, as long as you can perform, sure, do it. But try new stuff out in training before you do it in races.
1: And what would you recommend for somebody who's brand new to this and they haven't found what works for them? What would you recommend? Where would you recommend they start?
4: You can definitely try and start with bars that are commercially available all around. We have great sponsors on the team and they provide us with everything. And those bars are delicious, even though you have to eat them 365 days a year. <laughs> no, not really. That's why, that's actually why I make my own bars. Cause I always have the team bars when I go with the team. So I do like to make my own bars. If you're, if you like to cook, try something out. Try making some energy balls. There's loads of recipes. I would suggest the ones that are, if you're going a long ride, ones that are maybe more nut butter based. If you're going on charter rides, try the date-based ones. Those are really good, too.
2: It's funny. I think guys like you do a great service because, you know, I come back from a conference. I've just been to, you know, Sweden and Denmark and talked about, you know, all this alphabet soup and stuff. But at the end of the day, I get such a buzz out of talking on these sort of things and, you know, the phone ringing and talking to coaches that these sort of things are really providing a service to bridge the gap between, you know, what happens in the labs and you know, in the research arena and, and what really, really happens outside down the road. And it's not until you sit down and try and get a consensus on what we should be doing and giving practical guidelines that you realize it's it's not just a science. There's a lot of art in this. And as you say, Trevor, you've naturally found out that something works for you. Well, pretty much that most of your listeners probably fit into that category. And all I do or all we do is come along and merely confirm what probably what they're already doing in most cases. We'll, we'll see if the listeners are... <laughs> They'll
0: like it. They never cease to amaze us in their ability to take in this sort of uh, the real science is really what the uh, what we go for here. So there's a whole bunch of really good tips and tricks in there. Actually, we like to always sort of send people home with some takeaways. I think there are some some things out of this conversation that people can definitely do, uh, you know, in their own training, in their own eating, uh, in their own uh, nutritional intake. Doctor Holly, I want to I want to finish this off by asking you to look forward a little bit uh so both what you're working on right now what's interesting to you right now and then what you see kind of coming down the pipeline in the nutrition world
2: okay well um if i told you all my secrets i'd have to shoot you guys uh, (laughs) you can keep it at ten
0: thousand feet that's fine
2: (laughs) i'll let you in on a few things we're doing we're really centering on the moment uh, on the timing of nutrition um the timing of nutrition has a massive benefit on whether we can enhance the training adaptation and performance. So around a lot of macronutrients and some supplements as well, looking at the timing of nutrient intake. I think that's very important to maximize the training adaptation. And I guess the thing that we've got going for the next two or three years, we've got some very good grant money to look at um to look at circadian metabolomics and what do we mean by this that sounds like alphabet soup again (laughs) again looking at the timing of nutrition around training sessions and exercise habits not just with a view to looking at athletic performance but also looking at health and how the timing of meals can if you like control glycemic control and and prevent some of these chronic diseases so Hmm. perhaps not in your listeners vote for that but something as you get older and uh, sometimes a little fatter you have to start thinking about so (laughs) timed nutrition to optimize performance and health that would sum up my lab's work now, for the next five years
1: so, so now you're touching on something that's that's been a, a huge pastime of mine are, are you also looking at uh the, the whole concept of intermittent fasting and um yeah
2: yeah what, what we're looking at now is something which has been absolutely flogged to death in the animal literature but i can assure you there is not one ounce of human data we've just finished the study as i speak We're looking at circadian metabolomics and the timing of feeding. And one of the things we're looking at is this issue of time-restricted feeding. So very quickly, in the literature, at least if you're an animal, if you restrict your food intake to about uh, eight hours of the day, in other words, you prolong the fast, it's associated with a whole host of metabolic benefits. If, on the other hand, you're a grazer, as they're called, you nibble, you night eat, and you spread your food intake over 15 or 16 hours, your metabolic health profile is, is not as good. Again, that's at least if you're an animal. So we've just done that in humans and we're really excited. The muscles in the can, so to speak, we haven't analyzed it yet, but uh, a whole host of analysis would be undertaken to determine if this is true in hum- humans. So the whole issue of, of fasting for longevity, fasting perhaps for performance, not quite as uh, as clear there, but the whole issue of timing of food intake and the the period over which you wait yeah very interesting uh, area indeed
1: well it's, it's absolutely fascinating kaylee to, to fill you in on this i mean the, the research coming out it's you, you rarely see research be this one-sided you're just seeing benefits in almost every major chronic disease they're showing it, its effects on longevity are, are unbelievable it was um was it yeast studies where they they increased their lifespan 40 percent
2: yeah and and worms as well, and as i say it's it, it's good news at the moment if you're a if you're a lower organism or an animal <laughs> yeah. we, we won't show this in humans, and there is some human data out there, but it's largely you know epidemiological or cross sectional, but you're right there isn't a variable at the moment which seems to be negatively impacted so this is a really fascinating area, so the yeah. whole chronobiology area and new timing of nutrition and also how how exercise can rescue some of the deleterious effects of messing up the circadian clock and One of the best examples is feeding a high-fat diet. We know that messes up the circadian clock, and we're asking the question, can exercise actually rescue that? So yeah, maybe a podcast in two or three years on circadian metabolomics will be of of interest to the listeners then.
1: Well, that's where I was going to take us, is hopefully in uh, a couple of years, we can get you back in and get an update on all this research. I think uh, it would be
2: absolutely fascinating. Sounds good, and it's always good to talk to you guys. I'm actually going out a ride now. It's uh, it's about four degrees here. It's actually cold in Australia. Oh so no! Uh, <laughs> <I'll just try. laughs> yeah, well, we
0: tomorrow, are. Uh, I'm going to go find some dinner pretty soon. All right. <laughs> uh, we yeah, really sorry. appreciate that. That was that was just a fantastic chat. Cheers. Okay, Trevor. So Dr. Holly is now No, He's actually just went for a bike ride. Is what he what he told us. Um, <laughs> he is off the line. I want to. I want a real quick download on. Not really download, I want a real quick translation of everything we just talked about, maybe not everything. I won't ask you to sum up forty five minutes of of chatting uh, in in just a couple minutes, but there are a couple sort of important points that were made that may have gotten lost for some listeners in some of the scientific jargon. So let's talk about timing first and foremost. That was really what dr. Holly was was focused on. What were the takeaways that we ended up with? there on, on the timing front in terms of what our, our listeners can go to in their everyday training?
1: So I think to answer that question, you need to take a step back and, and look at where we were at probably 15, 20 years ago, where really the belief was both training and racing, you should be focusing on getting carbs. You cannot get enough carbs. Just eat, eat, eat carbohydrates. What a lot of Dr. Holly's research has been on and really what we are talking about throughout. That conversation was the idea that no, that's not always true when you're in a race and you have to compete and you have to be uh, work at high high intensity, yeah, you need those carbohydrates, you need to be eating them beforehand. you need to make sure your glycogen is fully repleted. You need to take them with you in the race, but it's not always best when you are training so if you have to do high intensity intervals, yes, again, you need some carbohydrates in your system, but if you're doing lower intensity work. You might actually see better adaptations to consume less carbohydrate, to not take the the cliff blocks or the gels on your easy three, four hour training ride and not focus on loading on carbohydrates beforehand. Where he's been going really recently with the research and a lot of what he talked about that's getting exciting is manipulating this. Figuring out ways to allow you to train at high intensity, but still get the benefits of that. What happens when your body's in a low carbohydrate state? So we were talking about that was when we were talking about that alphabet soup, and you see actually, uh, in higher levels of that whole alpha, alphabet soup when you train in a low carb
0: state. We're talking about the markers that would indicate training response. Thank you. Better way to yeah. say it. <laughs> so, but, but without necessarily. The training, or, or more of them for the same amount of training, basically? Well, so the
1: issue they ran into is when people are in a low-carbohydrate state, training hurts more. Right. You can't go as hard. Um, so in a couple of his studies, they found that, yes, well, you saw higher marker levels, um, you weren't seeing the, the performance improvements, and part of that was because they couldn't train as hard. Mm. So his sleep low, train high idea was let's have them do a hard interval session in a completely uh, glycogen-loaded state so that they can do the full workout at so full intensity. Enough food,
0: basically. Yeah. With enough food.
1: <laughs> but do it close enough to bed time that they're going to deplete a lot of their glycogen in that exercise. And then you don't restock it afterwards. And you have them sleep in that glycogen-depleted state. So then you get that bump up of those markers.
0: So you get these this boost in the markers, but you still get a quality training session. Exactly. Interesting. And then you get up in
1: the morning and you do a low-intensity training session in a completely glycogen-depleted
0: state. So just like a, like a zone one, zone two kind of ride. Right. Right. Base miles ride.
1: So that's... Where a lot of his research has been going is manipulating these effects. How do you get these bumps in the markers but still get the the hard training workouts and ultimately see both a rise in the markers and an improvement in performance That's where he's been heading.
0: I think it's fascinating stuff uh, I always love when we get when we get people like dr. Holly on the uh on the show, and I love it when we talk nutrition because then Trevor gets all excited. <laughs> <laughs> he gets super excited. I can see his I can see his beady little eyes lighting up over there.
1: <laughs> it is certainly fun to get somebody on the podcast who I have been reading for for many many years. And yes, I get excited about meeting researchers. <laughs> uh, where I think other people, if it was the the author of Harry Potter, they'd be very very <laughs> excited. No, I'm. So in the nutrition
0: world, Dr. Holly is J.K. Rowling. Is that what you're saying? Pretty much. Wow.
1: And he he mentioned his wife. His wife is is Louise Burke, who's actually done a lot of research with. And she's also one of the top
0: respected um, researchers in the world of sports nutrition. It's like if J.K. Rowling was married to Ernest Hemingway. Kind of. (laughs) All right. I think that is a good place to cut it off. Uh, I think, Trevor, I think you're doing the outro this week. I will do the outro. All right. Let outro, me find a, it. outro away.
1: Well, that was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at webletters at competitorgroups.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. While you're there, check out our sister podcast, the Velo News Podcast, which covers news about the week and cycling. You can also hear Kaylee share his thoughts on that one as well. It's unfortunate, but it's true. Yes. And let me just point out that since this is one of my first times doing the outro, I really sound like I'm reading it.
0: You are definitely reading it. <laughs>
1: You're far better at this. Alright. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash and on Twitter at twitter.com slash Fast Talk is a joint production between Velo News and Connor Coaching. That's you. That is me. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Kaylee Fretz, And Dr. John Hawley, I'm Trevor Conner. Thanks for listening.